1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDSE. Lucius Annaeus Seneca the Younger, usually known as Seneca, was a Roman Stoic philosopher, statesman, dramatist, and, in one work, satirist, from the post-Augustan age of Latin literature. Moral Letters to Lucilius, also known as the Moral Epistles and Letters from a Stoic, is a collection of 124 letters that Seneca the Younger wrote during his retirement, after he had worked for the Emperor Nero for more than 10 years. They are addressed to Lucilius Jr., the then procurator of Sicily. Regardless of how Seneca and Lucilius actually corresponded, it is clear that Seneca crafted the letters with a broad readership in mind. In this video, we bring you letters 1 through 7. Please don't forget to let us know in the comments if you enjoyed this chill book.
1: Translated by Richard Demkamer Letter 1. On Saving Time 1. Continue to act thus. My dear Lucilia, set yourself free for your own sake. Gather and save your time which lately, has been forced from you or filched away or has merely slipped from your hands. Make yourself believe the truth of my words, that certain moments are torn from us, that some are gently removed, and that others glide beyond our reach. The most disgraceful kind of loss, however, is that due to carelessness. Furthermore, if you will pay close heed to the problem, you will find that the largest portion of our life passes while we are doing ill, a goodly share while we are doing nothing, and the whole while we are doing that which is not to the purpose. 2. What man can you show me who places any value on his time, who reckons the worth of each day, who understands that he is dying daily? For we are mistaken when we look forward to death. The major portion of death has already passed. Whatever years lie behind us are in death's hands. Therefore, Lucilius, do as you write me that you are doing. Hold every hour in your grasp. Lay hold of today's task, and you will not need to depend so much upon tomorrows. While we are postponing, life speeds by. 3. Nothing, Lucilius, is ours except time. We were entrusted by nature with the ownership of this single thing, so fleeting and slippery that anyone who will can oust us from possession. What fools these mortals be. They allow the cheapest and most useless things, which can easily be replaced, to be charged in the reckoning after they have acquired them but they never regard themselves as in debt when they have received some of that precious commodity, time, and yet time is the one loan which even a grateful recipient cannot repay. Four, you may desire to know how I, who preach to you so freely, am practicing. I confess frankly, my expense account balances as you would expect from one who is free-handed but careful. I cannot boast that I waste nothing, but I can at least tell you what I am wasting and the cause and manner of the loss. I can give you the reasons why I am a poor man. My situation, however, is the same as that of many who are reduced to slender means through no fault of their own. Everyone forgives them, but no one comes to their rescue. 5. What is the state of things that it is this? I do not regard a man as poor if the little which remains is enough for him. I advise you, however, to keep what is really yours, and you cannot begin too early. For, as our ancestors believed, it is too late to spare when you reach the dregs of the cask. Of that which remains at the bottom, the amount is slight, and the quality is vile. Farewell. Letter 2. On Discursiveness in Reading 1. Judging by what you write me, and by what I hear, I am forming a good opinion regarding your future. You do not run hither and thither and distract yourself by changing your abode. For such restlessness is the sign of a disordered spirit. Primary indication to my thinking Of a well-ordered mind is a man's ability to remain in one place and linger in his own company. 2. Be careful. However, lest this reading of many authors and books of every sort may tend to make you discursive and unsteady, you must linger among a limited number of master thinkers and digest their works, if you would derive ideas which shall win firm hold in your mind everywhere means nowhere. When a person spends all his time in foreign travel, he ends by having many acquaintances, but no friends. And the same thing must hold true of men who seek intimate acquaintance with no single author, but visit them all in a hasty and hurried manner. 3. Food does no good is not assimilated into the body if it leaves the stomach as soon as it is eaten. Nothing hinders a cure so much as frequent change of medicine. No wound will heal when one salve is tried after another. A plant which is often moved can never grow strong. There is nothing so efficacious that it can be helpful while it is being shifted about. And in reading of many books is distraction. Accordingly, since you cannot read all the books which you may possess, it is enough to possess only as many books as you can read. 4. But, you reply, I wish to dip first into one book and then into another. I tell you that it is the sign of an overniced appetite to toy with many dishes. For when they are manifold and varied, they cloy but do not nourish." So you should always read standard authors. And when you crave a change, fall back upon those whom you read before. Each day acquire something that will fortify you against poverty, against death, indeed against other misfortunes as well. And after you have run over many thoughts, select one to be thoroughly digested that day. 5. This is my own custom. From the many things which I have read, I claim some one part for myself. The thought for today is one which I discovered in Epicurus. For I am wont to cross over even into the enemy's camp, not as a deserter, but as a scout. 6. He says, contented poverty is an honorable estate. Indeed, if it be contented, it is not poverty at all. It is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more, that is poor. What does it matter how much a man has laid up in his safe or in his warehouse? How large are his flocks and how fat his dividends? If he covets his neighbor's property and reckons, not his past gains, but his hopes of gains to come, do you ask what is the proper limit to wealth? It is first to have what is necessary and second, to have what is enough. Farewell. Letter 3. On True and False Friendship 1. You have sent a letter to me through the hand of a friend of yours, as you call him, and in your very next sentence you warn me not to discuss with him all the matters that concern you, saying that even you yourself are not accustomed to do this. In other words, you have in the same letter affirmed and denied that he is your friend. 2. Now if you use this word of ours in the popular sense, and called him friend in the same way in which we speak of all candidates for election as honorable gentlemen, and as we greet all men whom we meet casually, if their names slip us for the moment with the salutation, my dear sir, so be it. But if you consider any man a friend whom you do not trust as you trust yourself, you are mightily mistaken and you do not sufficiently understand what true friendship means. Indeed, I would have you discuss everything with a friend. But first of all, discuss the man himself. When friendship is settled, you must trust. Before friendship is formed, you must pass judgment. Those persons indeed put last first and confound their duties, who, violating the rules of Theophrastus, judge a man after they have made him their friend, instead of making him their friend after they have judged him. Ponder for a long time whether you shall admit a given person to your friendship. But when you have decided to admit him, welcome him with all your heart and soul. Speak as boldly with him as with yourself. 3. As to yourself, although you should live in such a way that you trust your own self with nothing which you could not entrust even to your enemy, yet, since certain matters occur which convention keeps secret, you should share with a friend at least all your worries and reflections. Regard him as loyal, and you will make him loyal. Some, for example, fearing to be deceived, have taught men to deceive. By their suspicions, they have given their friend the right to do wrong. Why need I keep back any words in the presence of my friend? Why should I not regard myself as alone when in his company? 4. There is a class of men who communicate to anyone whom they meet matters which should be revealed to friends alone and unload upon the chance listener whatever irks them. Others, again, fear to confide in their closest intimates, and if it were possible, they would not trust even themselves, burying their secrets deep in their hearts. But we should do neither. It is equally faulty to trust everyone and to trust no one. Yet the former fault is, I should say, the more ingenuous, the latter the more safe. 5. In like manner you should rebuke these two kinds of men, both those who always lack repose, and those who are always in repose. For love of bustle is not industry, it is only the restlessness of a hunted mind. And true repose does not consist in condemning all motion as merely vexation. That kind of repose is slackness and inertia. 6. Therefore, you should note the following saying, taken from my reading in Pomponius. Some men shrink into dark corners to such a degree that they see darkly by day. No, men should combine these tendencies, and he who reposes should act, and he who acts should take repose. Discuss the problem with nature. She will tell you that she has created both day and night. Farewell. Letter 4. On the Terrors of Death 1. Keep on as you have begun, and make all possible haste, so that you may have longer enjoyment of an improved mind, one that is at peace with itself. Doubtless you will derive enjoyment during the time when you are improving your mind and setting it at peace with itself. But quite different is the pleasure which comes from contemplation when one's mind is so cleansed from every stain that it shines. 2. You remember, of course, what joy you felt when you laid aside the garments of boyhood and donned the man's toga and were escorted to the forum. Nevertheless, you may look for a still greater joy when you have laid aside the mind of boyhood, and when wisdom has enrolled you among men. For it is not boyhood that still stays with us, but something worse, boyishness. And this condition is all the more serious because we possess the authority of old age, together with the follies of boyhood. Yeah, even the follies of infancy. Boys fear trifles, children fear shadows, we fear both. 3. All you need to do is to advance. You will thus understand that some things are less to be dreaded, precisely because they inspire us with great fear. No evil is great which is the last evil of all. Death arrives. It would be a thing to dread if it could remain with you, but death must either not come at all, or else must come and pass away. 4. It is difficult. However, you say, to bring the mind to a point where it can scorn life. But do you not see what trifling reasons impel men to scorn life? One hangs himself before the door of his mistress. Another hurls himself from the housetop that he may no longer be compelled to bear the taunts of a bad-tempered master. A third, to be saved from arrest after running away, drives a sword into his vitals. Do you not suppose that virtue will be as efficacious as excessive fear? No man can have a peaceful life who thinks too much about lengthening it or believes that living through many consulships is a great blessing. 5. Rehearse this thought every day that you may be able to depart from life contentedly. For many men clutch and cling to life even as those who are carried down a rushing stream clutch and cling to briars and sharp rocks. Most men ebb and flow in wretchedness between the fear of death and the hardships of life. They are unwilling to live, and yet they do not know how to die. 6. For this reason, make life as a whole agreeable to yourself by banishing all worry about it. No good thing renders its possessor happy unless his mind is reconciled to the possibility of loss. Nothing, however, is lost with less discomfort than that which, when lost, cannot be missed. Therefore, encourage and toughen your spirit against the mishaps that afflict even the most powerful. 7. For example, The fate of Pompey was settled by a boy and a eunuch, that of Quassus by a cruel and insolent Parthian. Gaius Caesar ordered Lepidus to bear his neck for the axe of the tribune Dexter, and he himself offered his own throat to Cherry. No man has ever been so far advanced by fortune that she did not threaten him as greatly as she had previously indulged him. Do not trust her seeming calm. In a moment, the sea is moved to its depths. The very day the ships have made a brave show in the games, they are engulfed. 8. Reflect that a high wayman or an enemy may cut your throat. And though he is not your master, every slave wields the power of life and death over you. Therefore I declare to you, he is lord of your life that scorns his own. Think of those who have perished through plots in their own homes, slain either openly or by guile. You will then understand that just as many have been killed by angry slaves as by angry kings. What matter, therefore, how powerful he be whom you fear, when everyone possesses the power which inspires your fear? 9. But you will say, if you should chance to fall into the hands of the enemy, the conqueror will come and that you be led away. Yes, whether you are already being led. Why do you voluntarily deceive yourself and require to be told now for the first time what fate it is that you have long been laboring under? Take my word for it. Since the day you were born you are being led thither. We must ponder this thought and thoughts of the like nature if we desire to be calm as we await that last hour, the fear of which makes all previous hours uneasy. 10. But I must tend my letter. Let me share with you the saying which pleased me today. It, too, is culled from another man's garden. Poverty brought into conformity with the law of nature is great wealth. Do you know what limits that law of nature ordains for us? Merely to avert hunger, thirst, and cold, in order to banish hunger and thirst, it is not necessary for you to pay court at the doors of the purse browed or to submit to the stern frown, or to the kindness that humiliates. Or is it necessary for you to scour the seas or go campaigning? Nature's needs are easily provided and ready to hand. Eleven. It is the superfluous things for which mince wet, the superfluous things that wear our toga's thread bare, that force us to grow old in camp, that dash us upon foreign shores. That which is enough is ready to our hands. He who has made a fair compact with poverty is rich. Farewell. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda. must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With
0: exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer.
1: They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Letter 5 on the Philosopher's Me. 1. I commend you and rejoice in the fact that you are persistent in your studies and that, putting all else aside, you make it each day your endeavor to become a better man. I do not merely exhort you to keep at it. I actually beg you to do so. I warn you, however, not to act after the fashion of those who desire to be conspicuous rather than to improve. By doing things, which will rouse comment as regards your dress or general way of living. 2. Propellant attire, unkempt hair, slovenly beard, open scorn of silver dishes, a couch on the bare earth, and any other perverted forms of self-display are to be avoided. The mere name of philosophy, however quietly pursued, is an object of sufficient scorn. And what would happen if we should begin to separate ourselves from the customs of our fellow men? Inwardly, we ought to be different in all respects, but our exterior should conform to society. 3. Do not wear too fine, nor yet too frowsy, a toga. One needs no silver plate, encrusted and embossed in solid gold. But we should not believe the lack of silver and gold to be proof of the simple life. Let us try to maintain a higher standard of life than that of the multitude, but not a contrary standard. Otherwise, we shall frighten away and repel the very persons whom we are trying to improve. We also bring it about that they are unwilling to imitate us in anything because they are afraid lest they might be compelled to imitate us in everything. 4. The first thing which philosophy undertakes to give is fellow feeling with all men. In other words, sympathy and sociability. We part company with our promise if we are unlike other men. We must see to it that the means by which we wish to draw admiration be not absurd and odious. Our motto as you know, is live according to nature, but it is quite contrary to nature to torture the body, to hate unlabored elegance, to be dirty on purpose, to eat food that is not only plain, but disgusting and forbidding. 5. Just as it is a sign of luxury to seek out dainties, So it is madness to avoid that which is customary and can be purchased at no great price. Philosophy calls for plain living, but not for penance. And we may perfectly well be plain and neat at the same time. This is the mean of which I approve. Our life should observe a happy medium between the ways of a sage and the ways of the world at large. All men should admire it, but they should understand it also. 6. Well then, shall we act like other men? Shall there be no distinction between ourselves and the world? Yes, a very great one. Let men find that we are unlike the common herd, if they look closely. If they visit us at home, they should admire us, rather than our household appointments. He is a great man who uses ethan dishes as if they were silver." But he is equally great who uses silver as if it were a It is the sign of an unstable mind not to be able to endure riches. 7. But I wish to share with you today's prophet also. I find in the writings of our Hekado that the limiting of desires helps also to cure fears. Cease to hope, he says, and you will cease to fear. But how, you will reply, can things so different go side by side? In this way, my dear Lucilius, though they do seem at variance, yet they are really united. Just as the same chain fastens the prisoner and the soldier who guards him, so hope and fear, dissimilar as they are, keep step together. Fear follows hope. I am not surprised that they proceed in this way. Each alike belongs to a mind that is in suspense, a mind that is fretted by looking forward to the future. But the chief cause of both these ills is that we do not adapt ourselves to the present, but send our thoughts the long way ahead. And so foresight, the noblest blessing of the human race, becomes perverted. 9. Beasts avoid the dangers which they see, and when they have escaped them are free from care. But we men torment ourselves over that which is to come as well as over that which is past. Many of our blessings bring bane to us. For memory recalls the tortures of fear, while foresight anticipates them. The present alone can make no man wretched. Farewell. Letter 6. On Sharing Knowledge 1. I feel, my dear Lucilius, that I am being not only reformed, but transformed. I do not yet, however, assure myself, or indulge the hope, that there are no elements left in me which need to be changed. Of course there are many that should be made more compact, or made thinner, or be brought into greater prominence, and indeed this very fact is proof that my spirit is altered into something better, that it can see its own faults, of which it was previously ignorant. In certain cases, sick men are congratulated because they themselves have perceived that they are sick. 2. I therefore wish to impart to you the sudden change in myself, I should then begin to place a surer trust in our friendship, the true friendship which hope and fear and self-interest cannot sever, the friendship in which and for the sake of which men meet death. 3. I can show you many who have lacked, not a friend, but a friendship. This, however, cannot possibly happen when souls are drawn together by identical inclinations into an alliance of honorable desires. And why can it not happen? Because in such cases, men know that they have all things in common, especially their troubles. You cannot conceive what distinct progress I notice that each day brings to me. 4. And when you say, Give me also a share in these gifts which you have found so helpful. I reply that I am anxious to heap all these privileges upon you, and that I am glad to learn in order that I may teach. Nothing will ever please me, no matter how excellent or beneficial, if I must retain the knowledge of it to myself. And if wisdom were given me under the express condition that it must be kept hidden and not uttered, I should refuse it. No good thing is pleasant to possess without friends to share it. 5. I shall therefore send to you the actual books, and in order that you may not waste time in searching here and there for profitable topics, I shall mark certain passages so that you can turn at once to those which I approve and admire. Of course, however, the living voice and the intimacy of a common life will help you more than the written were. You must go to the scene of action, first, because men put more faith in their eyes than in their ears, and second, because the way is long if one follows precepts, but short and helpful if one follows patterns. 6. Klenthe's could not have been the express image of Zeno if he had merely heard his lecture. He shared in his life, saw into his hidden purposes, and watched him to see whether he lived according to his own rules. Plato, Aristotle, and the whole throne of sages who were destined to go each his different way derived more benefit from the character than from the words of Socrates. It was not the classroom of Epicurus, but living together under the same roof, that made great men of Metrodorus her marches, and Polyanus; Therefore I summon you, not merely that you may derive benefit, but that you may in for benefit, for we can assist each other greatly. 7. Meanwhile, I owe you my little daily contribution. You shall be told what pleased me today in the writings of Hecato. It is these words, what progress, you ask, have I made. I have begun to be a friend to myself. That was indeed a great benefit. Such a person can never be alone. You may be sure that such a man is a friend to all mankind. Farewell. Letter 7 on crowds. 1. Do you ask me what you should regard as especially to be avoided? I say, crowds for as yet you cannot trust yourself to them with safety. I shall admit my own weakness at any rate, for I never bring back home the same character that I took abroad with me. Something of that which I have forced to become within me is disturbed. Some of the foes that I have rooted return again, just as the sick man, who has been weak for a long time, is in such a condition that he cannot be taken out of the house without suffering a relapse. So we ourselves are affected when our souls are recovering from a lingering disease. 2. To consort with the crowd is harmful. There is no person who does not make some vice attractive to us, or stamp it upon us, or taint us unconsciously therewith. Certainly, The greater the mob with which we mingle, the greater the danger, but nothing is so damaging to good character as the habit of lounging at the games. For then it is that vice steals subtly upon one through the avenue of pleasure. Three, what do you think I mean? I mean that I come home more greedy, more ambitious, more voluptuous, and even more cruel and inhuman because I have been among human beings. By chance, I attended a midday exhibition, expecting some fun, wit, and relaxation, an exhibition at which men's eyes have respite from the slaughter of their fellow men. But it was quite the reverse. The previous combats were the essence of compassion. But now all the trifling is put aside and it is pure murder. One, the men have no defensive armor. They are exposed to blows at all points, and no one ever strikes in vain. 4. Many persons prefer this program to the usual pairs and to the bouts by request. Of course they do. There is no helmet or shield to deflect the weapon. What is the need of defensive armor or of skill? All these mean delaying death. In the morning they throw men to the lions and the bears. At noon, they throw them to the spectators. The spectators demand that the slayer shall face the man who is to slay him in his turn. And they always reserve the latest conqueror for another butchering. The outcome of every fight is death, and the means are fire and sword. This sort of thing goes on while the arena is empty. 5. You may retort, but he was a highway robber. He killed a man, and what of it? Granted that, as a murderer, he deserved this punishment. What crime have you committed, poor fellow, that you should deserve to sit and see this show? In the morning they cried, kill him, lash him, burn him. Why does he meet the sword in so cowardly a way? Why does he strike so feebly? Why doesn't he die gay? Whip him to meet his wounds. Let them receive blow for blow with chests bare and exposed to the stroke. And when the games stop for the intermission, they announce, a little throat cutting in the meantime, so that there may still be something going on. Come now. Do you not understand even this truth, that a bad exemplary acts on the agent? Thank the immortal gods that you are teaching cruelty to a person who cannot learn to be cruel. 6. The young character, which cannot hold fast to righteousness, must be rescued from the mob, it is too easy to side with the majority. Even Socrates, Cato, and Laelius might have been shaken in their moral strength by a crowd that was unlike them. So true it is that none of us, no matter how much he cultivates his abilities, can withstand the shock of faults that approach, as it were, with so great a red in you. 7. Much harm is done by a single case of indulgence or greed. The familiar friend, if he be luxurious, weakens and softens us imperceptibly. The neighbor, if he be rich, rouses our covetousness. The companion, if he be slanderous, rubs off some of his rust upon us, even though we be spotless and sincere. What then do you think the effect will be on character, When the world at large assaults it, you must either imitate or loathe the world. 8. But both courses are to be avoided. You should not copy the bad simply because they are many, nor should you hate the many because they are unlike you. Withdrawing to yourself, as far as you can, associate with those who will make a better man of you. Welcome those whom you yourself can improve. The process is mutual, for men learn while they teach. 9. There is no reason why pride in advertising your abilities should lure you into publicity, so that you should desire to recite or harangue before the general public. Of course I should be willing for you to do so if you had a stock in trade that suited such a mob. As it is. There is not a man of them who can understand you. One or two individuals will perhaps come in your way, but even these will have to be molded and trained by you so that they will understand you. You may say, For what purpose did I learn all these things? But you need not fear that you have wasted your efforts. It was for yourself that you learned them. 10. In order, however that I may not today have learned exclusively for myself. I shall share with you three excellent sayings, of the same general purport, which have come to my attention. This letter will give you one of them as payment of my debt. The other two you may accept as a contribution in advance. Democritus says, One man means as much to me as a multitude, and a multitude only as much as one man. 11. The following also was nobly spoken by someone or other, for it is doubtful who the author was. They asked him what was the object of all the study applied to an art that would reach but very few. He replied, I am content with few, content with one, content with none at all. The third saying and a noteworthy one, two is by Epicurus, written to one of the partners of his study. I write this not for the many, but for you. Each of us is enough of an audience for the other. 12. Lay these words to heart, Lucilius, that you may scorn the pleasure which comes from the applause of the majority. Many men praise you, but have you any reason for being pleased with yourself? If you are a person whom the many can understand, Your good qualities should face inwards. Farewell.
0: Chill books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged.